let us return once again to our study on the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And, uh, and kind of ironically this morning, we are actually going to be looking at the smallest of the 12 of them, which is the book of Obadiah. In the, in the original Hebrew, so that is the language that most of the Old Testament was written in, in the original Hebrew, the longest book we have is actually Jeremiah, which contains 21,819 words. Uh, and then by contrast, uh, to think of another minor prophet when we've studied a couple months ago, Nahum, that one contains 500 and, I think, 558 Hebrew words. However, Obadiah only has 291 words in total, making it not only the smallest book within the minor prophets, but also within the entire Old Testament itself. And uh, by the way, does anybody here know what the, the smallest book in the entire Bible is? And if you know it, just shout it out. Third John, there we go, Joel. Yeah, so Third John is the, is the smallest book in the entire Bible with only 219 words in the original Greek. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that some of my text messages that I send are longer uh, than 219 words, so that's, that's kind of fun. Uh, but, but Obadiah, the fourth minor prophet within the 12, and also named after the guy who preached somewhere uh, within the mid-6th century B.C., I think, was crafted to be intentionally short. This is because the message of this book, uh, in contrast, is directed towards the large and the very overinflated ego of the nation of Edom. But before we get into all of that, let's just pause for a moment and turn to our Lord with a word of prayer. Bow with me if you will. Lord God, we thank you for your wisdom, your strength, and most importantly, your patience. We as humans can be rather stubborn sometimes, and we, we can believe ourselves to be much bigger and worth a lot more than we really are. But despite our unwarranted pride, you, you love us anyways. And because of that love, you, you don't want to leave us as we are. Lord, we pray that the message of Obadiah would convict us this morning. We ask that you send your spirit here to guide us in this study, and that you would allow me to only speak what you wish to be heard. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Obadiah. And it is okay to use the index for this one because it is kind of hard to miss. And there, there is only one chapter uh, in this book. And so we will start by reading the first four verses from Obadiah. And so if you don't have your Bible with you, I will have the words on the screen. Uh, they say this. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your hearts, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like eagles, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And if you are a note taker this morning, this then leads us to our first blank in the bulletin notes, which reads, The Sovereign Lord will avenge his people Israel by punishing the pride of Edom. Like I, like I mentioned before, and also like we can see from the very first verse, the book of Obadiah is all about the nation of Edom. But who or, or what really is Edom? Uh, well, this, this nation's origin is, is actually as old as Israel's just about. 
And it, it finds its beginning all the way back in the book of Genesis as well. And so if you remember the story of, of Isaac and, and Rebekah in Genesis 25, you might recall that Rebekah gave birth to twins. And the eldest she named Esau, and the youngest twin she named Jacob. And these two brothers, they, they never really got along too well in life. And so even in, in the womb, they fought. And Jacob, a little, bit, uh, a little bit later, it's always kind of a funny story to read, but a little bit later, he actually steals the birthright from his brother Esau by way of this bowl of, of red stew and a couple other unusual things. But if we, if we go a bit farther into the narrative of Genesis, we would see that Jacob is then renamed by God. He is given the name Israel, which of course becomes the name of the nation of Israel. And then Esau is also renamed. In Genesis 36.1, we see that Esau is called Edom, and his descendants are called the, the nation of Edom. And it's, it's true that Jacob and, ex, or Jacob and Esau, they, uh, they reconciled later in life, if you know the story. So Jacob, he meets up with Esau in Genesis 32 and 33, and he, he sends him gifts, he bows before him, and, and Esau comes and he forgives his younger brother for his previous trickery. But this reconciliation, it really doesn't last that long when we come and look at their descendants. There was peace in Israel, and in, in between Israel and Edom for a while. That is, until, until King David decided to subjugate Edom in 2 Samuel 8. Uh, but Edom then, in turn, rebelled against Israel by way of revolution in, in 2 Kings 8. And then, a bit later on, Edom decided to ramp up their resentment by aligning themselves with one of Israel's greatest political enemies, um, the nation of, of Babylon. And this is really where the tension between these two nations evolves into something much more sinister. Because in 587 BC, the king of Babylon, he came and he successfully destroyed the great city of Jerusalem by, by laying siege to God's people. And besides killing a great number of Judeans, the Babylonians, they also came, they took many of the, those in the southern kingdom as slaves, and they sent them out into exile. And so Babylon took Israelites as prisoners from their homes and their farms. They, they uh, burnt a great deal of the countryside, and they left the land just bare and desolate. But once much of Jerusalem had been sent into exile, what did Edom do? Well, they, they mocked their brother. They made fun of Israel's misfortune. But more so, it seems like Edom might have actually joined in and helped Babylon spill Israelite blood. And so if you're familiar with Psalm 137, which is a pretty brutal psalm, it talks about this. But also Ezekiel 25 and 35 um, kind of detail this happening too. And after Babylon ransacked Jerusalem, the Edomites, they went out and they plundered other Israelite cities. They went out and they, they killed many and they captured all the others to sell them into slavery. They saw that their brother was weakened and instead of helping, they kicked him when he was down. <laughs> and you know what? Edom was very, very proud of this. They thought that helping hurt Israel in this way was, was somehow praiseworthy. They thought that they were on top of the world because of these actions. Finally, Esau, the older brother, was better than Jacob. Finally, they would get the recognition that they deserved. 
And with that being said, and as you might have guessed, Edom's pride is a big deal in the book of Obadiah. The prophet really speaks about this quite a bit. And in fact, there are a few different sources of pride that are, that are pointed out within this book in a, in a few subtle ways. And for example, we see a couple different places that the nation suffered from the pride of... Am I working, Joe? Want to switch to the next slide for me? There we go. The pride of security and strength. So if you are big into movies, like I am, and I know some of you are, um, you may have seen the movie Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, and I think that's the third one, uh, where Indy and his dad, they go out and they find the Holy Grail, and I think his dad is played by Sean Connery, uh, which makes that movie even more fun. But if, if you've seen that movie, uh, you've actually seen a part of ancient Edom. There we go. Uh, and so in, in, in modern-day Jordan, there is this very well-preserved city from ancient times that is literally carved into the side of a mountain. And so this is Petra, um, also known as Sela to some, and those two words, they just mean rock in their respective languages. But, but this city was near the capital of Edom during the time of Obadiah's writing. And obviously, um, this city was a very, very big deal to Edom. Not only was it an ancient wonder of architecture, but it also served as a pretty good stronghold in times of war. So the Edomites, they didn't really have to worry about invading armies, knocking down their city walls, when their city walls, as we can see, were literally carved out of the sides of mountains. And you didn't have to worry about siege machines knocking down your archery towers when your, when your towers were literally carved out of, out of rock. Edom knew that it was secure in this way, and it was really a great source of pride for them. Uh, but they also, they also had a couple other places that they were very prideful in too. And so Edom had a decent-sized standing army. It wasn't that they only had these types of defensive strategies. And Edom, they, it also had the power to, to back up their threats because they were very skilled in, in ways of war. And, like we already discussed, Edom had, had friends in, in high places. And so, just to reference another movie real fast, um, a movie that I always watch every Christmas time is The Christmas Story. I think it loops around just kind of 24 hours on that day. And uh, every time I read Obadiah, I kind of think of The Christmas Story. And so there is that, and I think I have the names right, but there is, I think, Scott Farkas uh, is, is the bully. Um, and so he's, he's the true muscle, right? And, and we can think of Scott Farkas as Babylon. Uh, but then there was Grover Dill, kind of the little shorter, uh, you know, the leather-hatted kid, who was, they call him, I think, an arrogant toady or something. And he, he felt protected under the shade of his, his red-headed friend. That's, that's Edom, and that is, is Babylon. So Edom had a lot of pride in location. They also had a lot of pride in their strength and in their political allies. Uh, however, check this out, and we already have looked at it a little bit already, but uh, look, in, look at this. Obadiah 1, 3 through 4, and then 7 and 9. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your hearts, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. 
and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off from the slaughter. So Edom cannot hide in the clefts of the rocks from the Lord. They cannot rely on their allies either, as God will pit them against Edom, and their military power and strength will be cut off by slaughter. This is what the prophet is promising here. But the nation also had a couple other sources of pride, and so here is the second one, the pride of wealth. So when Babylon came and wiped out Jerusalem, they left a lot of Israelite farmland and a lot of Israelite cities vacant. And seeing this as an opportunity to gain more land for themselves, Edom just came and they moved right in. They, they looted houses, they planted their own crops in Israel's farm, and they, and they really, they, they came and they, they took the people that were left, like I mentioned before, and they sold them into slavery. This gained them a lot of, of wealth in doing so. But, but Edom, they also controlled a major chunk of the ancient trade route called the King's Highway back in those days. And so way up north in Damascus, this thing called the King's Highway started, and it went all the way down to the, um, to the port at the Red Sea. But in order to get from Damascus to the Red Sea, you had to both go through and pay tribute to the Edomites. Uh, and again, Edom was, was very proud of this. They had money, and they happily mocked and stole from Israel, their brother, uh, when they were most vulnerable. But if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures have been sought out. So in other words, Edom might have pillaged Israel like a thief, but the day is coming when they will be met with the same. And it's, it's kind of funny, actually, in a, in a sardonic kind of way, uh, that Obadiah writes that those who will, who will pillage Edom in the future will at least leave the gleanings behind for the poor. So these people in the future, they're going to be more considerate. They won't take everything away. Uh, these, these future plunderers are going to be a little bit more civil uh, than Edom. But there is one more source of pride that Obadiah points out and it is the pride of wisdom. The Edomites were noted for their wisdom in the ancient world. Even the literature in, in the Bible attests to this in, in some ways. And so in Job 1.1, 1, 1, uh, we see that Job himself was from a, a place called the land of Uz. And if this specific Uz is the same one that is mentioned in Lamentations 4.21, and then also in Jeremiah 25.20, that means that Job was from Edom, or maybe that Job was in some ways an Edomite. Uh, but so also was his friend. Eliphaz, the guy who kind of pops up out of nowhere in Job 4, is said to have been a Temanite, which Teman was a, a district of Edom. So, so Teman to Edom is like uh, Michigan to the USA. Uh, but archaeologists, they've, they've also uncovered a, something called an ostracon in Horvat Uza. And an ostracon is just a, a fancy word for a piece of broken pottery with writing on it. And so I tried finding a good picture of this, but there is no good pictures out there. But, but basically, this ostracon that they found has this weird Edomite version of the book of Job written on the side. And so it's kind of like some people went out and they wrote their own parallel wisdom story uh, to, that, what, to what the Bible was doing. Uh, however, when the Lord comes in judgment... Will I not, on that day, declares the Lord, 
destroy the wise men out of Edom in understanding on Mount Esau. So in other words, Edom, they had a lot of pride. They felt that they were protected from everything in the clefts of the rock. They thought that their, their armies and allies would save them. They thought that their wealth and wisdom would get them through anything, but their arrogance had blinded them to reality. God was coming, and nothing is powerful enough to stop the creator of heaven and earth. But let's, let's continue on a little bit further to see how this book of Edom ends. Obadiah 1.15, and then verses 19 through 21. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. And they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the peoples of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Those who have been saved shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So, not only will the Lord punish Edom, but he will also restore that which was stolen from Israel, uh, and then some. The second half of Obadiah is all about outcome. That is, what Edom has done to Israel will now also be done to them. If they, as they have exploited Jerusalem on its day of calamity, this coming day of the Lord will not be kind to them. Or, like Paul might put it in Galatians, what they have reaped, they will now sow. But Obadiah, he, he actually makes mention that this, this coming day of the Lord will not only affect Edom, uh, it will affect all nations. Edom here is, is really being singled out as a representative as to what will happen to all people who will reject God. All people will one day stand under judgment before Jesus, as Matthew 25 describes. But it is true that Edom's particular judgment for their pride and their cruelty towards their brother will happen before this eschatological end times one. Uh, and in fact, uh, in a lot of ways, this nation has already somehow reaped what they have sown. And so, in the, in the mid to late 500s BC, there was a guy who, who rose to power called Nabonidus, and he was a Babylonian king, and, and he was, remember, Babylon was the nation that Edom had allied themselves with against Israel. And so, this Nabonidus guy, he rose to power, and he came back into this area, and he decided that Edom had a little too much going on. Uh, and so Babylon, they, they kind of came and they pushed Edomites, they pushed them right out of Judea and right back into the south. Then, a little bit later on, these people called the Nabataeans, they rose to power in that region and they came and they, they pushed Edom further into the mountains. And these Nabataeans, they actually came and they took control of their own rock fortresses. And so these things that Edom thought were unstoppable, impenetrable, the Nabataeans just walked right in and took them from them. And it was actually the Nabataeans who revamped Petra and carved it out even more into the ways that we see it in movies like Indiana Jones or if you've ever been to Jordan, uh, that we see that now because of the Nabataeans. Uh, but then a guy in 129 BC, uh, he, was, he had the name of John Hyrcanus, 
he came along and he just about destroyed them all. And so if you're familiar with the story of Hanukkah and some other um, kind of parallel stories that run with that, you might recognize that name. And he really did a good job of uh, destroying the Edomites. That is, until Rome rose to power a little bit later on and they, and they finished the job. However, this is not at all the same fate mentioned for God's people, according to Obadiah here. Instead of remaining landless or instead of just being kicked out farther and farther, God's people will one day be returned to Jerusalem. Uh, what's, what's more, though, is that they were, were promised to also gain control of even more land than what they had during Solomon's time. And so these places mentioned, like the Negev and Zarephath in the, in the land of the Philistines, these were all places promised to Israel during their wilderness wandering period after the Exodus. But Israel never actually took control of many of them during their, their divided kingdom. Nevertheless, it does seem like they will get them uh, in at least one day uh, in the future. And I probably should at least briefly mention my translation in verse 21. And so if you've been following along on your Bibles and not just on the screens behind me, you might have noticed that my translation actually looks a little bit different than the one in your Bible. And so some English Bibles they have, like, for example, the NIV and the ESV, they translate that first verse as, as saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule uh, Mount Esau. And some people, they really do make a, a really big deal about the plural savior thing. But there is actually good grammatical reasons to read that word as passive instead of active. And so in other words, uh, instead of saviors shall go up, it's probably best to understand that as those who have been saved shall go up. Uh, although that's nerd stuff. That's the things that really get me excited. Uh, and so if you're, if you're really interested in why that is, you can come and talk to me afterwards. But the point of this passage really remains the same regardless of how we read it. God has promised to restore his people and the Lord will judge the wicked. And while Israel is yet in exile and suffering under the hands of Edom, God, her king, has promised that he is coming to bring rescue and to retake his throne. And that's the book of Obadiah. It's, it's short, but don't let its size fool you. It, it really does pack a heavy punch. It's convicting in some ways, and it's, it's encouraging in other ways. And I think it really has a lot to say to us Christians who are living some 2,500 years after it was written. And so let us just take a couple minutes now to think about how we might be able to apply the book of Obadiah to our own lives now. And I've got two points uh, to that degree. And so here is the first. Jesus will one day vindicate his people and silence the arrogant. God, God rules the world right now. And he is the one who turns the course of nations and the course of history as he pleases. Uh, if this weren't so, he couldn't promise Jerusalem on Obadiah's day that he would cut off Esau and reestablish Jacob. But he did. And he brought much of that to, to fruition already. And I think that, that we can take a lot of comfort in the fact that we do also serve a sovereign God who keeps promises like these. God will bring justice to those who target the innocent. Um, I think of my friends Denise and Laminda, who are currently serving in, in Sri Lanka right now as, as missionaries. And if, if you're not aware, uh, if you haven't been keeping up with the news, on Easter Sunday, 
in Sri Lanka, a whole lot of churches over there were bombed. And several hundred Christian worshipers, I think the, the number is like 300 and above now, several hundred Christian worshipers have, have died because of it. And this act, you know, unsurprisingly, has put a lot of fear into people's hearts, especially so because a terrorist organization is now boasting in the mayhem and in this, this cruelty that they have caused. Um, but there's, there's also this, this really horrible but telling picture that has been floating around the internet that really, I think, really encapsulates what is happening here. And it's, it's of the aftermath of one of the bombings. And the church is evacuated, and there is just rubble all over, but there's this one little statue of Jesus that is this kind of left standing on the table. It's, it's still upright, it's still standing, but it has been, it's been sprayed with blood of the innocent victims who were killed in, in this attack. And I'm, I'm not gonna show this photo for obvious reasons. If you really want to look it up, you, you can. But I think it, this, this photo, it really kind of serves as a good testament to the promises of God laid out for us in the prophets. The Lord is aware of the blood spilled in this world, and he hates wickedness, but especially that done against his people. And we might sometimes feel like we've just been, you know, been kind of jostled around aimlessly, or we might feel like we've been riding around in a, in a stagecoach pulled by wild horses, but we should not fear because God is sovereign and he has promised that things will ultimately work out in the end for those who trust in him. The, the ending of Obadiah, it, it foretold the day when Israel's king would come to bring rescue and to retake his throne. And that happened. Jesus was crowned king on the cross. In his resurrection, he humiliated the powers of this present world and he has promised to return again to judge the wicked and to vindicate the innocent. And so because of that, I think that we can join in with our brothers and sisters, maybe elsewhere, who read Obadiah presently and can only relate with an exiled Israel. And so their prayer, maybe those in Sri Lanka and other parts of the world, and maybe even in our own, own neighborhood, but their prayer is, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I think that can be our prayer too. There's one more thing I'd like to point out, though. Pride comes before a fall. And this, of course, is a common idiom based on Proverbs 16, 18 that states, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, it, it goes before a fall. And I think if we were to summarize Obadiah with one verse, I think this one really fits it well because Edom's big problem, like we saw over and over and over again, was their pride. They let their security and strength, they let their wealth, and they let their wisdom trick them into believing that they didn't really need God for anything. Pride, in a sense, is the forgetting of God and our dependency on him for everything in this life. And in Edom, they, they definitely fell into this trap. Uh, but, you know, the things that the nation of Edom took pride in are really sometimes the same things that we take pride in today. And so this is kind of a, a silly story uh, to kind of make it more lighthearted from the Sri Lanka thing. But, but I remember way back when I was in high school, I was really boastful about my skateboarding skills. Uh, and so if you guys didn't know that, I used to, I used to skateboard. Uh, but uh, in reality, I, I wasn't that good. Uh, but in my head, I thought that I was just the best there was. And I'd always try to find opportunities to show other people my, my tricks or just to show other people how cool I was. And I, and I remember uh, one occasion where this really, really backfired on me. Uh, my, my pride very literally came before a destruction. And so there was this, this young kid who had brought a 
something called a banana board. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with, but they're like these really small little boards. They're usually yellow, uh, hence the name banana. Um, and he brought this board with him to Heritage Landing, which is a popular skateboarding spot in Muskegon, where I grow up. Um, so if you've ever been to Muskegon, specifically, if you've ever been to the, I think they call it the, the Unity Christian Music Festival that happens there in Muskegon, that's Heritage Landing. Uh, but my friends and I, we were skating on the stage there at Heritage, and we spotted this young kid with his banana board just skating down the sidewalk towards us. And I, in thinking quickly, I decided that, wow, this would be a really good moment to impress another kid. Uh, maybe they can see how cool I am. And so I, I skated up to him, and I, I said, hey, kid, can I please borrow your skateboard so I can show you how to really ride it? Uh, and, and he obliges me in this, and there was his first mistake. Uh, but, but here is my mistake, really. I, I messed up pretty bad. This kid's skateboard was plastic. It had cheap wheels, and it had even cheaper bearings. And I at least had 100 pounds on this, on this, little, this little child. And so when I went to do a kickflip, uh, and I landed back down on the board, not only did I break this young kid's skateboard in half, but I, but I also somehow shattered every single one of his wheels. Uh, and, I, and of course, this, he, he just starts crying. Uh, in my arrogance, it, it found its immediate punishment in that. I felt so guilty, uh, and, and so guilty, in fact, that uh, I, I felt like I really needed to give him uh, my own skateboard, uh, too. And so pride comes before destruction, and sometimes in a very literal sense. But, uh, but things, again, things that the nation of Edom took pride in are the same things that we sometimes take pride in as individuals now. Silly things, yes, sometimes, but also more serious things as well. For example, there is nothing wrong with wanting to be self-sufficient. There is, is nothing wrong with, with having wealth. But when we pursue these things by, by pushing the majesty of God to the sidelines, we have a problem because ultimately all we have comes from God. And if we, if we boast in our possessions instead of the one who gave them to us, uh, we, we live in a very backwards way. And more so, in the, in the Edenite city of Teman, um, wisdom, right, it, it was valued overall. And I imagine that those who didn't think similarly to the Edomites, maybe it was Israelites, and maybe it was even people who were living there, uh, they were likely ostracized and mocked. But, you know, we do the same sometimes. And so it's all over Facebook, right? So those who think one way about science are ridiculed by, by others who don't. And, and those who buy into one type of political system are mocked by others who don't. And uh, you know, just read the comments on certain Facebook pages or, or certain articles posted if you, if you don't know what I mean. So we, we, we sometimes think that we are so much smarter than others, and because of that, we are going to succeed where they have failed. But, but this way of thinking can really trick us into believing that our brothers and sisters are somehow lesser than us. And that is a very dangerous thing. Pride has the power to wrap up our ugly sin in very beautiful boxes and present it to us as perfectly fine or even commendable. But Edom, they also struggled with pride when it came to their security uh, and their strength as well. And so they thought that by their own might, they could save themselves from all harm. They thought that their fortresses were impenetrable and that their allies and their armies were, were cut above the rest. And in a certain sense, they thought that they could save themselves from anything and from anyone. This was their, they were their own salvation. And I think that we can sometimes fall into similar trappings too, but especially 
when we apply this type of thinking to our spiritual lives. And so can we save ourselves from the wrath of God by our own might? Can we do enough good works in this life to sufficiently please the Lord of all? No. Only through the blood of Jesus can we find salvation. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord, realize that we have faults and that all of us have sinfulness and sinful inclinations, but then we need to submit to the only one who is strong enough, the only one who is wise enough, and the only one who is powerful enough to save us in the end. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the witness of Obadiah. Through this prophet, we are reminded that you are a God who keeps promises. You are aware of the violence that that happens in this world, and, and you act accordingly in your good timing. Lord, we pray that when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering, that we would remember this. But more so, we pray that we would learn to reject pride, and through the help of your Spirit, learn to humbly submit ourselves to you. You are the only one powerful enough to save. And the only way we can have saving faith is through your son, Jesus. Let us remember that the next time we are tempted to boast in something besides you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at this time, I would like to invite you to stick around. We have cake out there. Uh, You can uh, sign some cards for us. Make sure you congratulate a graduate and then stick around for our BFG time. But more importantly, maybe, stick around for our potluck that happens after the fact. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.